Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. We'll be reading Matthew 24, 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when we will see these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places." All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold." But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Good to see you all. Welcome to New King Church. Um, It's a privilege to be able to Uh, be up here and preach for us this morning. Uh, If we have not had the chance to meet, my name is Lucius, and um, by this point in the service, I'm typically sitting down where you are uh, listening to someone else preach, Uh, but today I get the opportunity to preach. I am uh, not only uh, one of the pastors here, but I have the great privilege of uh, being the worship leader, and so typically I'm helping lead the songs, uh, but Ben felt like it was a good week to take a break, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, He labors so faithfully uh, for our church to bring the word of the Lord to us each and every week. Um, But we keep planting churches, and all the people who might preach when Ben would take a break are not here, Uh, so the opportunity falls to me. And I'm very excited about it. Uh, So I'm really, really grateful for Tiffany and uh, the worship team for leading us in worship this morning and giving me the opportunity uh, to preach. I'm grateful for them every week uh, to be able to lead with them, uh, but especially today so that uh, I can be up here and open up God's word for us. But before we begin, um, let me say another word of prayer. Father, we are so humbled by your love and your grace for us. Lord, we are so 
humbled to be in a place where we can gather together and open up your word, Lord, and, and not be worried about the consequences. Well, we know that is not the case for many in this world, and we do not take that uh, for granted. And this morning, Lord, as uh, we look in your word, as we consider um, the end, consider what might be coming, that we would put all of our hope and our trust in you and in who you are and in the promises that you have given us, Lord. We remember that you are faithful to your promises, and that is what we rest in this morning. So, Lord, uh, would your spirit come and teach us and guide us and give us insight and change us, Lord, we know uh, that you have the power to change our hearts, and so uh, we lift ourselves up to you this morning, asking that you would do just that, and I pray this in your name, amen. So we've been in a series, um, rather lengthy series, in the book of Matthew called Kingdom Come, considering uh, what the kingdom of God is, seeing how Christ is ushering in his kingdom, thinking about the different aspects of that kingdom. And though we have spent a bigger chunk of time in this series, uh, if I might be so bold, I feel like as we enter this chapter, we are taking a turn towards uh, maybe the beginning of the end. Uh, Now, I say that lightly because I wouldn't put it past us to still have several months uh, in the book of Matthew in this series, but as we look at this story, as we see Christ and what he's doing, he's starting to kind of tie a bow on all of the different avenues of ministry that he has been in. And in chapter 24 here, uh, we find ourselves in Passion Week, Holy Week. It's the week in between uh, Palm Sunday, where he comes in into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Between that Sunday and the next Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday, or Easter, as we know, and it is Tuesday evening in our story, and he has just uh, spent time in the temple rebuking uh, the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and for their unfaithfulness, Um, and he and his disciples actually leave the temple for the last time before he's going to be crucified. And... um, They leave the temple, they leave Jerusalem, and they start heading towards uh, east, towards Bethany. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like every good story contains cardinal directions, Uh, so I'm going to utilize them uh, because I love maps. And so when we think about Jerusalem, we think about Israel, where we are right here, we have the capital city of Jerusalem, and just east of that is Bethany, where he's been staying in this whole week of Passion Week. And so he and his disciples leave Jerusalem, they start heading east, and as you go, you pass uh, what's called the Kidron Valley, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is, where he'll be later this week, where he'll be betrayed, Um, and he starts heading up a mountain called the Mountain of Olives, right before you get to Bethany. And as he's going, he decides, you know what? I'm going to hang out here for a little while. For the next two chapters, we have what's called the Olivet Discourse, where he takes a seat on the Mount of Olives. And from there, just east of the city, you can see this unbelievable view of Jerusalem, of the temple and everything in it, right? Looking west, and he's sitting there, and he begins to talk to his disciples and prophesy about two things. One, the end of time, and two, 
the destruction of everything that they are looking at. Jerusalem, the temple, and everything inside. Now, when uh, and Eric and Annette were leaving for their trip out uh, west, their much-deserved, much-earned trip out west, and with Aaron planting a church, uh, I knew for the last couple months that uh, I might have the opportunity to preach for us. Uh, and I was really excited about that. I uh, really want to learn this skill, flex this muscle, uh, see how this goes. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think there are any topics that I wouldn't preach, but I guess if I were to say there is a list of topics that maybe I don't want to do first, uh, the end of time is probably on that list. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this is where the Lord has us today, right? So we're going to dive in uh, and we're going to see uh, what might be relevant uh, for us and how we think about these things. But I want to start by telling you about this guy named Harold Camping. You may have heard of him before. In 2005, Harold, uh, he was a Christian radio host out in California, and he made this pretty bold prediction that Christ would return on May 21st, 2011. And when that day came and went, uh, he said, you know, a spiritual rapture did take place, but the Christians are not going to be taken up until October 21st, of that same year, 2011, which, as he said, would coincidentally coincide with God's destruction of the universe. And um, I think it's clear by now that that did not happen. And interestingly enough, he is not the only person to make this kind of prediction. His is probably the most widely reported, just because of his fame and because of the radio that he had. He garnered a lot of support. Um, But, like I said, Many, many people have made this kind of prediction. They've used things like Matthew 24 and other really relevant passages to try to predict the end of time and try to, try to interpret things in such a really unhelpful way. And though this list of calculations is really long, uh, I think that they all have this in common. is that they all failed to recognize the point that Jesus was trying to make in this passage, not only to his disciples sitting there with him, but to us as well today. In the details that Jesus discloses about wars, about destruction, about earthquakes, famine, I think there's one detail that should rise to the top, and it's that there are some who will fall away, and that there are some who will endure. And for us, amidst all the details and questions that you might have about the end of time, because it's interesting, right? It'd be great to know when that's going to happen. And are these things that we're seeing, are they predicting it? Maybe. But here's the best question that I think we can ask ourselves today about all these details. Will you endure to the end? And so in these first 14 verses of chapter 24, I believe that there are four characteristics that stand out about the ones who do indeed endure to the end. And here's my first one. It's that the ones who endure to the end are guarded against alarm and worry. So as we saw, this story began with the disciples marveling at the temple, uh, the beautiful architecture, and Jesus says, look, this entire place, it's going to be torn down. 
Not one stone left on another. And then when they get to the Mount of Olives, uh, the disciples ask further about when this might happen and also about the end of the age. And he has this to say. So look at uh, 24, uh, starting again in verse 4. It says, Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place. The end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Did you catch the exhortation there in the middle of that? Just one simple sentence, kind of hard to miss, or easy to miss, rather. But Jesus says in verse 6, See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place. How can he say that? Right? He's talking about deception and wars and nations rising up against nations and earthquakes and famines and, and for us, persecution and hatred and slaughter. And Jesus has the audacity to say, See that you are not alarmed. And not only that, he says that this is just the beginning of labor pains. So, as many of you know, uh, Blair and I are about to have a baby. Uh, we don't really know what day exactly. Sometime in the next two to three weeks. It seems like it's just up to the baby uh, when that will happen. From everything I've heard, all the research, can't predict it. <laughs> Similar to the end, right? <laughs> Blair was asking, you know, so this is my first sermon here at New King. Uh, she was asking, you know, are you going to like talk about me? Am I going to be like a sermon illustration already? I said, well, this passage literally says labor pains. <laughs> And uh, we happen to find ourselves 37 weeks pregnant right now, so it'd be hard to, uh, <laughs> hard to not talk about that. So we took this uh, birthing class, right, uh, which was easily the time I learned more about something from not knowing anything. Very, very quickly learned a lot. Uh, so it did its job. It was really helpful. Um, but as we were going through the class, one thing became pretty clear. And it's that when contractions start, you can be guaranteed of two things, right? One, that soon you'll have a baby. Or maybe in this context, as we're thinking about it, soon the end will be here, right? And maybe, I don't know if end is right, maybe just the beginning, you know, because our first child might be the beginning. But the end of pregnancy, the end of pregnancy is coming. But here's the second thing you can guarantee, is that it's about to get a lot worse before that end comes. <laughs> Only for me. I think Blair will be fine, right? Amen. Yeah. So, let me ask you. Have you heard of wars? Of rumors of wars? And of natural disasters? Of famines? And I said earlier, right, it's foolish to try to predict the end of time when all these things are going to take place, but from what Jesus just said to us, we can certainly be sure of one thing, that this is just the beginning. And if what Jesus said doesn't feel like enough doom and gloom, let me add to it, it's going to get a lot worse. So how do we guard ourselves against alarm and worry? I think one thing is really clear, is that we cannot put our hope in temporal things. The disciples are 
marveling at the temple, looking at this incredible architecture and the precision. And some of these stones, scholars say, are 40 feet long and 12 feet high. This thing is incredible. And especially for these countrymen, who, fishermen who, who see this and are like, wow, this is unbelievable. And Jesus says, this is all going to be thrown down. Not one stone left upon another. And guess what? It did. Now, some 40 years later, Rome came in and completely tore it to the ground. Josephus is a first century uh, historian, and he had this to say about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He said, It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those that came near believe that it had ever been inhabited. And what did Jesus say? Not one stone will be left here upon another. This world we inhabit will also come to an end, and everything within it will be laid even with the foundation. Later on in this very chapter, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. So what are we holding on to here that we need to let go of? Is it your career? Maybe your retirement plan? Is it the safety of this country? What if this week Russian troops just decided, let's take this global, right? And we're in our streets, burning things to the ground. How do we respond? See to it that you are not alarmed because these things must take place. But we don't know what this fulfillment is going to look like in our context, and it would be foolish to try to predict it. But one thing is clear, we cannot be afraid because something will happen. Something might happen, but we can't be alarmed. Psalm 112 talks about the traits of a righteous man. Look with me at verse 6 through 8. It says, he will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured he will not fear. In the end, he will look and triumph over his foes. The way that we guard against alarm and worry is very, very active. Jesus says, see to it that you are not alarmed. Not just don't be alarmed. It's thinking about it constantly. And so we have to put our hope in God. We have to be securely set in him and what he holds to be the future, which is that the ones who endure will be saved. We don't know the context of what that might look like. We don't know our part in it, but we know that we can rest in that hope because it is true. He has said it. And if we are to endure, we have to guard ourselves against alarm and worry. Here's the second characteristic that I see from this passage. And it's that the ones who endure to the end know the real Christ. Christ makes it clear that one of the things that we will see as the end is drawing near is this deception pulling us away from the true Christ. Look again at verse 4 and 5. It says, Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. And then further on down in verse 11, it says, Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. 
And similar to wars and natural disasters and famine, I believe that this kind of deception is happening in our context today as well. But I want us to help us understand what this kind of deception might look like. Uh, So back when I was living in Alabama, uh, I was at home one day, and there was a little knock on the door. Came, I opened the door. Uh, It was this kind young lady and gentleman, uh, and they asked me if they could tell me about God the Mother. I was definitely intrigued, uh, so I said, sure, uh, lay it on me. And they started to talk through these different passages in Scripture, trying to show me the existence of this God the Mother, uh, and I would gently push back. Uh, And this went on for a little while uh, until it took a very, very unique turn that I was definitely not expecting. And the girl said, you know, this God the Mother, she's actually alive today, and she lives in South Korea. And I was very taken back by this, and wrongfully thinking that it wasn't going to get even stranger, she said, actually, Jesus has come back too, and he has a new name, actually, and his name is On Sang Hong. I had to look it up just to make sure I didn't get it wrong. So I tell you all this to say that if uh, any of you are looking at verse 5, Christ saying, people are going to come saying, I'm the Messiah. If you're looking at that saying, well, that's not happened yet, so we're good. We're still far away from the end. That is happening. This kind of deception is real, and it's out there, right? So, and I, so after that conversation, I did a little research. Um, this guy, the, the Jesus with the new name, uh, he actually died in 1985. So I was almost sold, right? But that was the thing that really <laughs> thought if, you know, Jesus is going to come back, he probably should continue living. Um, but it's out there. It's real. And here was easily the most heartbreaking part of that whole conversation, right? She looked at me one time, and the girl said, look, I know this seems crazy, and I know this is kind of far-fetched, and I was skeptical at first when I started hearing about these things, but I looked into it, and this is the truth. And I realized that the power of the enemy to pull us away from the true Christ is so much stronger than we realize as far-fetched and as crazy as this deception might be, it is out there and it's powerful and the enemy is using it to keep us from enduring to the end. But I believe that this type of pointed deception, uh, people coming to say that they are the Messiah, yes, it's out there and it's dangerous and it's real and we have to guard against it, but I think it's rare, specifically in our context. And I think the deception that we must look out for is much more subtle. Uh, One of my favorite phrases of my father that he liked to say to me all the time was, the most dangerous lie is the lie that lies closest to the truth. There are hundreds of Jesuses out there today each with their subtle lie that is more dangerous and more wrong and more destructive than the last. And maybe, you know, thinking about where we are, maybe your mind is going to the Jesus with the lie that's obvious, right? Uh, The Jesus uh, that would tolerate 
homosexuality or a Jesus that would rather speak love than truth, right? These are the ones we're confronted with a lot. But what about the Jesuses with the subtle lies that maybe we are a little more susceptible to? A Jesus that would prioritize your freedom. A Jesus that would uh, understand saving money for the future rather than maybe giving where he's calling you to give right now. A Jesus that would understand your desire to stay close to your family instead of going where he's trying to save the lost. Do you know how the Secret Service uh, deciphers if a bill is counterfeit or not? They are trained to know real currency so well that if anything comes to them that is off in any way, they immediately know. Let this be how we are with Christ. Know Christ, study his word, understand how he would react in all your different situations of life and think about the different areas that you might have to think about so that if anyone brings in a Christ that is contrary to what we see in scripture, you can say no. That is not the Christ that I know. That's not the Christ who is true, the real Christ. If we're to take Jesus seriously in this passage, then this deception is going to get worse. We've already seen it get worse, right? We see many falling away because of a Jesus with a subtle lie that feels right, but is not scriptural. So, let it not be true of us what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. He says, But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, and you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which we had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Do not let that be how we are. And let me tell you what, the real Christ, the one that you can get to know in this book, is so much better than any of the false Christ with their subtle lies that we are surrounded with. So get to know him. The third characteristic is this, is that the ones who are to endure to the end are defined by love. Look at verse 12. It says, Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. The verse almost seems out of place, doesn't it? Right? He's talking about great signs of destruction and hostility and preparing his disciples and preparing us for the, the way that we're going to be treated and persecuted. Yet he takes this moment to point out this very specific trait, love growing cold. Now, love can be a pretty broad word, um, so I want us to take some time and try to understand what Christ might be getting at here. Uh, I want to use the help of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to Timothy about a really similar uh, time and topic in 2 Timothy 3. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. He puts that a little lighter than what Jesus says, right? Difficulty, to say the least. For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 
And I think this passage helps us get a broader understanding of what Christ means when he says that love will grow cold. And it's that people's love for God will diminish, but their love of self and love of this world will increase. They don't lose love totally, right? Because it says they'll love certain things. They'll be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, but their love will go toward the wrong thing. And I would say that not only will their love for God diminish, but the way that they love will become twisted. I think we can get into this mindset uh, where we shut ourselves off from the world and say, hey, I love God, right? Or maybe not even just shut ourselves off from the world, shut ourselves off from the church as well, from anybody else. We say, I love God, I'm going to hold on to that, I'm going to push everything else away, and it's just me and God, right? That's loving God. But is that the right attitude here? When asked about the greatest commandment, Jesus, yes, he did lead with love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, but he didn't stop there. He said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So yes, our love for God cannot and it must not grow cold, but if our love for others is diminishing, then that may be a warning sign that your love for God and love for the things of God might diminish as well soon after. And interestingly enough, I think uh, a really good picture of someone not loving others well is Christians preparing for the end of time. You know the type that I'm talking about? They say, I got my land, I got my diesel fuel, I got my guns, and uh, when the end goes down, you're not going to kill me, right? I'm going to fight off everybody, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick this out to the end. And I don't know if that's just my, uh, my South talking, and that's the kind of people I experienced. But, um, but I think we can have a tendency to begin to separate ourselves from the world around us, especially as we think about the end, thinking that it's safer or better, right? We don't want to be pulled away from God, so we're just going to step away. But wouldn't a greater picture of love be for Christians to say, you know, I know tribulation is coming. And I know that wars are certain. I know that persecution is inevitable. But even with the last breaths that God has given me on this earth, I'm going to spend every moment out there trying to bring more people into the fold of God rather than shrinking back in fear. That is loving. Now, it might seem strange that Jesus coupled this idea with lawlessness, right? Saying, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But in one of the last conversations Jesus had with his disciples, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Our desire to remain faithful to the law that he has set forth and our tendency to love him and love the things he loves are intrinsically linked. So we must watch out. Because as the world grows closer and closer to the end, our temptation towards lawlessness and unfaithfulness will increase. We have to watch out for both of those things, that our love does not diminish, that our faithfulness to Christ and what he has set forth does not diminish, and those will go together as we firmly think about not letting our love grow cold. This was Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi, and I echo this for us today. He prays that your love 
in Philippians 1, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That your love may abound, but not just aimless love, love that is full with knowledge and discernment so that we can approve what is excellent and be blameless and pure when Christ comes back. Let's be defined by this kind of love if we too are to endure. My final characteristic that I see from this passage is this. It's that the ones who endure to the end will fiercely expand the kingdom of God. Verse 14 says, This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I was really grateful for uh, that song we just sang, Promises, thinking about uh, the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. Uh, And if it's a new one to some of us, I want to go back and read some of these lyrics. It says, God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant and of faithful promises, Time and time again, you have proven you'll do just what you said. Now, to help us understand how relevant and true these lyrics are, look with me at Genesis 12. This is the very first call of Abraham. God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was his first promise in the call of Abraham. And thousands of years later, just days before Christ is about to be betrayed by his friends and crucified by his own people, as he's sitting there looking at the great city of God, Zion, the mountain of God, and he's talking about how it's going to be torn down. And not only that, but the whole world as we know it is headed for destruction. And he's saying, in the midst of all this, if you're wondering if God is going to be faithful to the promises that he has set forth, guess what? He is. Because as things get worse and worse and worse, Christ guarantees one thing, that the good news that he is about to fulfill will go to the whole world before the end is written. So what does this incredible faithfulness of God have to do with us today as we consider enduring to the end? Well, I see two great implications from this promise that Jesus has given. And the first is that the kindness of God is greater than we can comprehend or imagine. The Apostle Paul is exhorting the Roman church uh, in Romans chapter 2, and he says, Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. They're judging all the people around them because of their sin, and he says this kindness was shown toward you to lead you to a place of repentance and salvation. And there's so much kindness wrapped up in this promise that Jesus gives us here in verse 14. And yes, we groan, right, with the rest of creation asking Jesus to come, 
We want him to restore all things. We want him to set up his eternal kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. But don't think that for a second there is no purpose to his patience and timing. Because what if he had brought the end before the promise had reached us or our children? Praise God that his patience has seen to it that we are now aware of the all-powerful, all-knowing, loving God who set up his covenant through the blood of Jesus, and we too share in the inheritance of the saints. I think this passage in 2 Peter is very relevant because they share this similar groaning, wanting Christ to come. But Peter says to them in chapter 3, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. There are still hundreds of millions of people in our world who, though, yes, they are without excuse because God has made himself plainly known, they have still not been given access to the special revelation of God's word that holds the good news of redemption in Christ and praise God that he has made a promise that he's going to bring this word to them before the end is written. And in light of that, here's the second implication of this great promise. It's that we have the opportunity to be a part of seeing this promise fulfilled. Because the church that God has established, that we are all a part of, in all his wisdom and sovereignty, that is the method that he has chosen to reach the nations. And when Jesus is looking at the crowds who are lost and he has compassion on them, he doesn't say to just pray that they'll be saved like that. What does he say? He says, pray that God would raise up laborers to go into the harvest and bring those into his fold that he has elected for salvation. We need to see that we, the church, our witness is the main purpose bringing those people in and seeing this promise fulfilled to all nations. So when you see the world around you is heading towards destruction, what is your gut reaction? Is it alarm? Is it to run and hide or to wonder if God is still in control? Or is it to put on your armor and tell yourself, this could be just the beginning of what's coming, but there is work to be done. There are people and tribes and nations who do not yet know this good news of Jesus that he has promised will go to them, and we are a part of that promise. Because if we too are endure to the end with Christ, we have to remain faithful to his calling and see the expansion of his kingdom as priority number one. So is your life defined by praying for the lost? Are your thoughts consumed by the next person that God could be using you to bring into his kingdom? Many times I confess that is not my priority. But the kindness of God was shown towards us. So let the kindness work through us so his love and mercy can snatch yet another from the grip of the domain of darkness.
we cannot neglect the command and opportunity we have been given to expand God's kingdom. Now, I want to call our mind to um, one verse that I think is so relevant for all these things we've talked about today. And it's Philippians 1.6. It says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And I think this verse accomplishes two things in the context we're thinking about. One, uh, if you are found in Christ and these things are kind of worrisome to you, you're thinking the way to endure is hard and it's difficult, you can put your trust in him because he has promised that he will carry it on to completion. Not to say that you have no part to play and you do not actively think about these things, but ultimately our hope is in him who will carry it on. But the second thing that I want us to see is that there's another characteristic for those who might endure to the end. It's almost a precursor to all these four that I've listed for us. And it's that he must begin a good work in you. In this passage, Jesus is, I think, specifically talking to those already found in the fold of God. And it's relevant for us, but maybe you're in here thinking, this isn't as relevant to me right now because I don't think I have that first characteristic. I don't think he has begun this good work in me. But just a couple days after this conversation with his disciples, he is betrayed, he is crucified, and he's put up on a cross for the sin of everyone. And that is the way that he can begin a good work in you if you trust in him, put your salvation in him, recognize that we are not perfect. We have sin, we are separated from God, but his blood can cover that and give grace to us. So I'm going to ask the band to come on back up here. And as we begin considering these things, what are ways that you need to fight to endure? As you think about these characteristics, are you lacking? Pray to God that he would give you strength and wisdom because he's going to see it to the end, but you pray that he will and he'll show you how. If you're not already found in Christ, pray that he would begin this work so that you too can be one who endures. Because in verse 13, there's an incredible promise. It says, the ones who endure to the end will be saved. We all want to be saved from what's coming and be found in the eternal kingdom that Christ is setting up. Let me pray for us. Father, we have so many questions about what might come, about what our future holds. But Lord, would the question of will we endure rise to the top and give us focus, Lord, to be found in you, to know you as who you have said you are, and to put away alarm and worry because that is against the promise. So Lord, give us understanding, give us strength in 
would we remember the incredible promises that you have set forth and praise you and worship you in response. We pray this in your name. Amen.